Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Now we come to a section that is more popular with Seventh-day Adventists. The section regarding the writings of the spirit of prophecy. Now if anyone has been listening so far, you will note that we have been using the spirit of prophecy extensively because it is the light that God has given us in these last days. It is the light that shines in a dark place. And all the statements and quotes that have been used have been shown to substantiate and prove one truth, that the servant of the Lord did not believe in the concept of the Holy Spirit being a different individual to God. And she told very plainly that Christ was the begotten of God. Now we're going to look at some of the objections from the spirit of prophecy and some of the clarifying statements given to us. And we'll do this in this section. And this section is entitled Ellen White and the Nature of the Godhead. Our first objection is a statement that has no support, no factual support. It's a statement by Waitara Church. And the statement says, There is no convincing evidence that Ellen White was anything but a believer in the true concept of the Trinity, but did not bring her views to the fore until the 1890s. However, she warned on several occasions that conjecture on the nature of the Godhead was fruitless and counterproductive. Now, some of these statements that are made here lack some very, very strong support. They lack any support whatsoever, actually. Now, the statement here says that Sister White, the prophet of God, was a believer in the concept of the Trinity, but she did not express these views, or she did not bring these views to the front until the 1890s. In other words, before the 1890s, these views were not expressed, or her belief about God. Now, anybody who has access to the writings of Spirit of Prophecy should be a good student and check these things for themselves, rather than going by what is said from the church, what is said from the front. A lot of people today put a lot of weight on what they hear in church without reading for themselves. Now, that's the claim. It says before, the, she only made her views prominent after the 1890s. So let's have a look at some of the writings before the 1890s and see, did the servant of the Lord clarify her position about who or what is the makeup of God? What is the hierarchy in heaven? What did she say? about that before the 1890s. In 1876, Manuscript Releases, Volume 12, page 208, quote, God is a moral governor as well as a father. He is the lawgiver. In Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 2, page 9, the year 1877, quote, The Son of God was next in authority to the great lawgiver. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, page 17, the year 1870, quote, Satan in heaven, before his rebellion, was a high and exalted angel, next in honor to God's dear son. Now, all these statements that we just read are statements before the year 1890. Now, just look at these statements and read them, and please tell me, does this sound like a believer in the doctrine of the Trinity? In the first statement, we're told that the Father is the moral governor. He is God. God is the Father, and the moral governor, he's the lawgiver. 
the next statement says that the Son of God is next in authority to the great lawgiver. Now, stop here for a minute. If God the Father is the great lawgiver, and the Son of God is next to, in authority to the great lawgiver, in, a, in the mind of a Trinitarian, who should be next in line? There is the Father, and next to him is the Son. To a mind of a Trinitarian, who is next in line? Now notice, without conjecturing, the servant of the Lord tells us who is next in line. Now notice if that understanding is a Trinitarian one or not. And the next statement tells us that Satan in heaven before his rebellion was a high and exalted angel next in honor to God's dear Son. So you have God the Father, then the Son of God, and next in line, next in honor to God's dear Son is Lucifer. Question, is this the Trinity that people believe in? Does any Trinitarian list the hierarchy in heaven in that order? Then how can people claim that Ellen White was a Trinitarian when she very plainly before the 1890s expressed the true understanding of what is going on in heaven? Now notice that understanding didn't change after the 1890s either when she is said to have come to the forefront with her views. She didn't become Trinitarian. Notice Desire of Ages, page 234, after the fall after Satan was cast out of heaven. Quote, It was Gabriel, the angel next in rank to the Son of God, who came with a divine message to Daniel. So even well after the 1890s, the one next in rank to the Son of God is an angel, Gabriel. So the order, after the fall of Lucifer, is now God the Father, his Son, and next in line is Gabriel. He is the angel next in rank to the Son of God. Now, is this what the Trinity teaches and preaches today? The answer is no. So the charge that Ellen White became, or became vocal about the Trinity after the 1890s does not stand on either end of the argument. She was clear about it before the 1890s, and she was still consistently clear after the 1890s, and that clearness was not a Trinitarian concept as any person who has read those statements will clearly see. Now we're told here in the next slide from my entire church, given a general warning quote from Ministry of Healing, page 429, the revelation of himself that God has given in his word is for our study. This we may seek to understand, but beyond this we are not to penetrate. The highest intellect may tax itself until it is wearied out on conjectures regarding the nature of God, but the effort will be fruitless. This problem has not been given us to solve. No human mind can comprehend God. None are to, none are to indulge in speculation regarding his nature. Here silence is eloquence. The omniscient one is above discussion. Amen. That's a beautiful warning. That in dealing with the topic of the Godhead, we're treading on holy ground. Conjecture about his nature is to be avoided. Speculation about God is to be avoided. We are to study what he has revealed about himself and no more. Now, the objection that is using the statement from Montar Church continues to say that Ellen White took her own advice, refusing to be drawn into arguments between Aryan and non-Aryan positions held by her contemporaries. Her silence on these matters, even when her husband held semi-Aryan views, was consistent also with her view 
the doctrine should be established from the Bible only and not from her writings. Now let's see if that statement holds any weight. Before we go on, it'll be noticed that the words Arian and non-Arian and semi-Arian are used here. And as is usually the case, sadly, people today refer to our pioneers as being Arian or semi-Arian in their belief. Now, this term is used in a negative manner because Arian is associated with the heresy of Arius, as we shall see in the history section of this presentation. But just a comment here that the use of these uh, terminologies, these name-calling, calling the pioneers by a name that they never refer to themselves as, is used as a scaring tactic regarding the way that they believed. So when somebody says, oh, these people were Aryan, that's supposed to turn people off. Now, I just want to comment on this here because the pioneers never refer to themselves as Aryan. They never never refer to themselves as semi-Aryan. But this is the names that are attributed to them by people today. Now, I do not know why any faithful Seventh-day Adventist would want to label the pioneers of this church with any label that has any negative connotation. But it is understood, as is the case, that this is used today to label the people who believe in the same faith that the pioneers believed in, to label them with this label, to give that faith a negative connotation. And this is the tactic that is used today, and is the same tactic that has been used by the Church of Rome. But nonetheless, let us examine what the objection says. The objection says that Ellen White took her own advice, and she wasn't drawn out into these arguments, and that she was silent on these matters. Her silence on these matters was consistent with her view that doctrine should be established from the Bible only and not from her writings. Now, it's true that she said that doctrine is to be established from the Bible only, but was she really silent on these matters? Was Ellen White silent on these matters that are most important to us? Let us read from The Great Controversy, page 493, the 1888 edition. Quote, Christ, the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the Eternal Father, one in nature, in character, and in purpose. The only being in all the universe that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. Question. Is this statement vague or mysterious in any way that it is hard to be understood? The answer is no. Here we're told very plainly that Christ, the only begotten of God, that's in heaven, is the only being in all the universe that could enter into the counsels and purposes of God. Brethren, there is no other being in all the universe besides Christ who can enter into the counsels of God. There is no other being whatsoever. Now, immediately, that should tell you something about the Holy Spirit, whether he is a being or whether the current understanding of the Holy Spirit has been faulty somehow. Because the Holy Spirit, if he is a being, is ruled out of the counsels and purposes of God. That is just absurd. Either the Holy Spirit is not a being or he is a being that cannot enter into the counsels of God. Let's read the next question, the next quote, quotation, 1888, Materials, page 100, uh, 1600. 
and 33, quote, There is no place for gods in the heaven above. God is the only true God. He fills all heaven. Those who now submit to his will shall see his face, and his name will be in the foreheads of all who are pure and holy. Here we're told plainly that God is the only true God. He's the one that fills all heaven. He's the one whose name will be in our foreheads. Who is this speaking about? Whose name will be in the foreheads of the believers? Revelation chapter 14 tells us plainly that it is the name of the Father. He is the only true God. And His only Son, His only begotten Son, is the only one in all the universe who is allowed into His counsels and purposes. Very plainly, Ellen White here is not silent regarding these things, but she speaks plainly. Let us continue. Crest Collection, page 61. Quote, If men would accept Christ and see the binding claims of the law of God, they would not take a neutral position, but would stand out in full confidence and say, The Lord is my helper. He is the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent, is the supreme and everlasting good. Thus they would secure for themselves the grand promises of God. How so very plain. No silence in this quote either. He is the only true God, and Jesus Christ is the supreme and everlasting good. Continuing, Sermons and Talks, Volume 1, page 343, quote, God is a person, and Christ is a person. Christ is spoken of in the word as the brightness of his, the Father's glory and the express image of his person. So if God is a person and Christ is a person, we have two persons. And we're told that these two persons are the only ones who could counsel together. Christ was the only being who could enter into the counsels of his Father. There is no other being in all the universe who could enter into that counsel. That is very plain testimony. That is no silence regarding God and his Son. Continuing, Waitara makes... Oitara Church makes the following statement. In his thesis, Erwin Gain states that Ellen White appears to be a monotheist Trinitarian throughout her life. Once again, the statement is given with no substantial support whatsoever. Now, it's very interesting. Just note here that some of these words that are used when people make statements should alert you to the very weakness of the statement that is being made. For example, the word here appears to be. If it appears to be, it can also appear not to be. These statements that are neither here nor there that are used actually weaken the statement that is being made. When, when we say it appears to be, it seems so, it is likely that. All these are non-conclusive evidences. They are mere hints. So Ellen White appears to be a monotheist Trinitarian, and that's of course a contradiction of terms right there, monotheist, monotheist Trinitarian throughout her life. But nonetheless, let's see, was Ellen White, or did Ellen White appear to be a monotheist Trinitarian throughout her life? And the question we need to ask ourselves is this, let's look at some statements from Ellen White and see, would a Trinitarian make those statements? Would a Trinitarian person make statements such as the following? For example, Youth Instructor, December 16, 1897, paragraph 5. Quote, From eternity 
there was a complete unity between the Father and the Son. They were two, yet little short of being identical. Two in individuality, yet one in spirit and heart and character. There we go. There is complete unity between the Father and the Son. They are two, and they are one in spirit. There are two individuals, but they are one in spirit. That's a Father and a Son and a spirit. But let's continue. Desire of Ages, page 769. Quote, In the beginning, the Father and the Son had rested upon the Sabbath after the work of creation. Now, if Ellen White appeared to be a Trinitarian, where is the Holy Spirit? Was he not resting upon the Sabbath after creation? We're told here that the Father and the Son were the ones who rested because they're the ones who were working in creation. Now, if you read carefully in the Spirit of Prophecy, if you just read plainly, you don't even need to pay very careful attention, you will find that in the work of creation is attributed only to two beings, that is the Father and the Son. Now, the Bible told us that very plainly in a number of places, as in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 4, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through to 18, and Ephesians chapter 2, where God says, where the Bible says that God created all things by His Son, Jesus Christ. So, Ellen White does not appear to be making the statements that she is claimed to be believing. But let's continue. The next statement, Youth Instructor, July 7, 1898, paragraph 2, quote, The Father and the Son alone are to be exalted. Now, this statement alone is enough to refute the claim that Ellen White was a Trinitarian. Honestly, would a Trinitarian ever make a statement like that? Would a Trinitarian say, the Father and the Son alone are to be exalted? If the Father and the Son alone are to be exalted, then what are we to do with the Holy Spirit? The Father and the Son alone are to be exalted. That is not a statement that a Trinitarian would make. Continuing with the presentation from Waitara Church. We have the objection here. Many times she referred to the Holy Spirit using the pronoun he, even as early as 1857, and the reference is given there where we're told that the Spirit is called he or his. Humble and contrite, they submit to the molding and fashioning of the Spirit, and they will know what his eternal fullness means. And continuing, even as late as 1909, Ellen White still used the term it in reference to the Holy Spirit. Reading from the North Pacific Union Gleaner, May 26, 1909, quote, It is necessary that both teachers and students not only assent to the truth, but that they have a deep practical knowledge of the operations of, of the Holy Spirit. Its cautions are given because of the unbelief of those who profess to be Christians. Again, this objection is really... Uh, only proving the opposite argument. It is admitted that the Holy Spirit is called He, which we all admit, and it's also admitted that the Holy Spirit is called then It in the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy. Now, that's an honest admission, of course. That's an admission that cannot be escaped. The Holy Spirit is called an It countless times in the Spirit of Prophecy. But if you do a search in the Spirit of Prophecy, you will never find the Father called an It. 
and you'll never find the sun called an it. And here's the question that we need to ask ourselves, a few questions. Is it appropriate to call God the Holy Spirit it? Is the Father ever called an it? Is the Son ever called an it? How can they be three co-equal persons if two of them cannot be called it? Why is it that the Holy Spirit alone is referred to as an it? These are questions that should cause us to do some serious thinking. It is appropriate to call the Spirit it, but it's not appropriate to call the Father or the Son it. That doesn't mean that these are three co-equal persons. There is something about the Spirit that qualifies it to be referred to as an it, that the Father and the Son cannot be referred to as an it. So that objection only proves the opposite, that the Father and the Son alone are to be exalted, and they have fellowship with us by their Spirit, which is called an it. And it's also called he, because he or it is their own personal presence with us. Continuing, White Our Church makes the following statements, Ellen White and the word begotten. Now we looked at the word begotten in the Greek, in the Bible, in the New Testament, and we found that it actually means only born, as the lexicon very plainly stated. Now let's look at Ellen White's use of the word begotten. Now we're told here, never does she infer by use of these words that Christ was created or had a beginning. And the statement is quoted to support that. Now the statement that is used here is a statement again that actually proves the opposite. Let's read it together and see. Does that statement say anything about Christ being created? Does that statement say anything about Christ having a beginning? Reading from Signs of the Times, May 30, 1895. Quote, A complete offering has been made, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Not a son by creation, as were the angels, nor a son by adoption, as is the forgiven sinner, but a son begotten in the express image of the Father's person and in all the brightness of his majesty and glory, one equal with God in authority, dignity, and divine perfection. In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What a beautiful statement. Jesus is not a son by creation. To constantly misrepresent the truth about God and charge those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, charge them with believing that he is created, is not staying true to the facts. Jesus is not created, as we are told here very plainly. Jesus is not a son by creation. Neither is he a son by adoption. Neither is he in a role. Neither has he been adopted into sonship. But he is a son begotten. Now, if you look up in any dictionary, because here the prophet is using plain English, speaking in the English language, saying that he is a son begotten. If you look up in any dictionary, what does the word begotten mean? You will find one meaning. It means to be born. Jesus was begotten. He is born. And as such, he is equal with God in authority, inheriting God's own nature, dignity, and divine perfection. 
in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now let's read further upon that. Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 907. Quote, In Christ is gathered all the glory of the Father. In him is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. The glory of the attributes of God are expressed in his character. Notice how the fullness of the Godhead that was in Christ is defined here as all the glory of the Father, because Christ is the only begotten of the Father. And the fullness of the Godhead that dwells in him is all the fullness of the Father the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of His person. Now, the claim is made in the beginning of that slide about Christ and a beginning. And a lot of people stumble on this point. Did Christ have a beginning or is He without a beginning? And a lot of people imagine or assume that if Christ is begotten and has a beginning, then He cannot be divine. But the very fact that Christ is begotten from his Father, who is divine, is proof of enough proof enough of his divinity. Christ was begotten, and we're told about Christ how long he has had existence. Now let's read carefully this statement and note what Sister White says concerning the existence of Christ. Bible commentary volume seven, page nine hundred and nineteen. Quote Angels of God looked with amazement upon Christ who took upon himself the form of man and humbly united his divinity with humanity in order that he might minister to fallen man. It is a marvel among the heavenly angels. God has told us that he did do it, and we are to accept the word of God just as it reads. And although we may try to reason in regard to our Creator how long he has had existence, where evil first entered into our world and all these things, we may reason about them until we fall down faint and exhausted with the research, when there is yet an infinity beyond. The servant of the Lord here, here tells us that we cannot reason in regard to Christ how long he has had existence. It's beyond us. Question. Would she say this about a being who has no beginning? Would she say, how long has he had existence if there was never a point when he was begotten, when his existence as the Son of God, as the only begotten Son of God, had its origin? The Bible plainly tells us that Christ's origin is from the days of eternity. And we cannot reason how long that is. We cannot reason how long he has had existence. But we shall see more on that later. Continuing, Ellen White on the person of the Holy Spirit. White Our Church continues and makes the following statements. Yet many times in her writings, after 1888, Ellen White affirmed the, the personality of the Holy Spirit. And the statement from Evangelism, pages 616 and 617, is quoted. Quote, the Holy Spirit has a personality, else he could not bear witness to our spirits and with our spirits that we are the children of God. He must also be a divine person, else he could not search out the secrets which lie hidden in the mind of God. And the quote that is used here is used to prove that the person of the Holy Spirit is different to that of the Father and the Son. It is another third individual being 
from the Father and the Son. Now that statement seems to suggest that, but as we are told in Scripture, we are to study line upon line and precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, and we are to allow, to allow the Scripture to be its own interpreter. The same rule applies to the spirit of prophecy. We are to study the spirit of prophecy, here a little and there a little, and allow the spirit of prophecy to be its own interpreter. Now, if we look at other statements from the spirit of prophecy, and if you have been listening, we have been looking at many statements so far, you will notice a continuity of thought. When we come to a statement like this that seems to suggest different, what do we do? Do we leave all the other statements and grab onto one statement, as many brethren have done? Or do we go and seek for line upon line and precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. This is what we shall do. Now, we read earlier in Testimonies, Volume 7, page 273, that when God gives us His Spirit, He gives us Himself. We'll read it again together. Keep in mind that when we remember this principle, things will be simple to understand. We won't put stumbling blocks for ourselves. The principle is, quote, in giving us His Spirit, God gives us Himself, making Himself a fountain of divine influences to give health and life to the world. End quote. Understanding this principle will aid us in understanding some of the more difficult statements from the spirit of prophecy. Notice, God gives us Himself when He gives us His Spirit. His Spirit is Himself. Now, it's very simple. Once we understand that the Spirit is Himself, if the Spirit is a person, it is because God is a person, because the Spirit is Himself. For example, the Spirit has a personality because God has a personality, for the Spirit is Himself. In giving us His Spirit, God gives us Himself, not someone else. So when God gives us Himself in Spirit, He is not devoid of personality. He just does not give us a force. He gives us Himself, His own personality. It's not some impersonal force or essence, as many people imagine and accuse. No, but it is rather a very personal and intimate presence. It's His own Spirit. It's Himself. It's God's own person, having His very own personality. The same goes for the fact that the Spirit is a divine person. That is because God is a divine person, and the Spirit is God Himself. God is a spirit and a person, and His Spirit is a person because His Spirit is Himself. The principle, once you understand it, is very simple. Notice, the faith I live by, page 40, tells us plainly, God is a spirit, yet He is a personal being, for so He has revealed Himself. And He reveals Himself and gives us Himself by giving us His Spirit. And everything that His Spirit is, he is, because His Spirit is Himself. So when we read that His Spirit is a person, it's natural, because He is a person. When we read that His Spirit has a personality, well, that's obvious, because He has a personality. And when He gives us Himself, in giving us His Spirit, He gives us all these things. So we cannot take one statement and use it and contradict other statements. Our job is to harmonize the statements. Continuing on, with the personality of the Holy Spirit, Waitara Church makes the following claim. Ellen White on the person of the Holy Spirit, and the quote that is used is, special testimonies, 
it's actually the same book, Evangelism, page 617, which is quoted from Special Testimonies. And these two statements are really the same point is made in them, and we'll read them together. This is a very popular objection, very popular objection that many people misunderstand, and many people build their doctrine on a few words of inspiration that are taken in a misunderstood way, ignoring the weight of evidence. In this presentation, we will not ignore the weight of evidence. We will not hide statements. We will not be scared of statements. But we will look at every statement and every objection that is presented, and we will look at them in the light of line upon line and precept upon precept, knowing full well that the truth has an answer that harmonizes all statements. Let's read them. The prince of the power of evil can only be held in check by the power of God in the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Desire of Ages, page 671, almost the same quote. It says, Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who could who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. That is the statements. These are the statements, I'm sorry, from the Spirit of Prophecy. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the third person of the Godhead. Just a comment. In the Zarb Ages, quote, the third person of the Godhead has been capitalized by later editions in that book. That statement, if you check it in its, con in its original context, was written in small letters. The reason why I make that comment, some people might think it's insignificant, is that some brethren actually use the fact that that expression is capitalized to actually give more weight to the argument. But let's look very plainly without being at all scared of some of these expressions. Who is the third person of the Godhead? We were told that the third person of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. Does Sister White tell us elsewhere who she means when she says the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes, she does. And we will look at that. But before we look at that, we need to make sure we understand what she is saying and what she is not saying. The third person of the Godhead does not mean a third person in the Godhead. Now, somebody might say, we're splitting hairs. But brethren, we're dealing with something so serious that a lot of people are building hopes on, on assumptions and conclusions without reading what is written properly. Let us look at what's written. The statement says the third person of the Godhead. Nowhere ever, ever are we told that the Spirit is a third person in the Godhead. And yet, that's what all people believe. They believe that the Holy Spirit is a third person in the Godhead, not realizing that the prophet said third person of the Godhead. Any person who has studied English grammar will realize that the expression third person is a grammatical term. Jesus Christ spoke of himself many times in the third person. Examples of that are numerous in the Gospels. And the point is this, third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, is defined for us by the Spirit of Prophecy. Manuscript Releases, Volume 14, page 179. Christ tells us, quote, Christ tells us that the Holy Spirit is the Comforter, and the Comforter is the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Truth, which the Father shall send in my name. This refers to the omnipresence of the Spirit of Christ, called the Comforter. So the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, is the omnipresence of the Spirit of Christ called the Comforter. Again, Review and Herald, April 5, 1906, paragraph 12. Quote, 
It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Christ is not here referring to his doctrine, but to his person, the divinity of his character. Again, the spirit is his person, the divinity of his character. This is the third person of the Godhead. You see, the third person of the Godhead is understood by many people as a numerical term. And the grammatical term is at all is totally ignored, is not considered at all. The third person of the Godhead would imply that there is a first person and a second person, and therefore the Holy Spirit is the third person. So goes the reasoning of most brethren who read the statement. But if you search in the spirit of prophecy, if the Father is ever called first person of the Godhead, you will search in vain. If you search for second person of the Godhead, you will also search in vain. And if you search for third person in the Godhead, you will again search in vain. And yet that is the understanding that most people hold to. The expression we're dealing with is third person of the Godhead, which can be understood as a grammatical expression. And we're told here very plainly who this third person of the Godhead is. It is the omnipresence of the Spirit of Christ. It is his person. It is the divinity of his character. Sister White calls that the third person of the Godhead. That does not mean a trinity, as is commonly understood or misunderstood by people. Continuing with the next objection, quoting Special Testimonies Series B, number 7, this statement is another statement that is used to show that Sister White believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. And the statement says, The comforter that Christ promised to send after he ascended to heaven is the Spirit in all the fullness of the Godhead, making manifest the power of divine grace to all who receive and believe in Christ as a personal Savior. There are three living persons in the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and those powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life of Christ. What a powerful statement in support of the doctrine of the Trinity. Many people say, this is perhaps the pillar statement that is used from the spirit of prophecy to defend the charge that she was a Trinitarian. And of course, the the focus of the statement is that statement in the middle, that, that clause in the middle, which says there are three living persons in the heavenly trio. People say, there you go. There are three living persons in the heavenly trio, a father, a son, and a spirit. Not so, brethren. We study the writings of the prophet. We don't go by misquotations. That is a blatant misquotation of the writings of the prophet. The prophet never said in the heavenly trio. She never said that. Any person who has access to the writings of the, of the prophet can search for themselves. Let us look at what the prophet said and what the prophet did not say regarding these statements that are in question. Here we have before us an actual handwritten manuscript, a transcript a copy of that uh, manuscript that is written in her own handwriting, from which that statement comes. Now, if we look carefully, and it's been enlarged here for you so you can see it for yourself, Ellen White's original handwritten manuscript was corrected by her to read the clause that is in question 
Quote, here are the living three personalities of the heavenly trio. She doesn't say in the heavenly trio. She says of the heavenly trio. And, uh, someone again might say we're splitting hairs here, but brethren, people get up the front and they misquote the prophet and people build their faith on misquotations. That has something to be said in light of these things. Something needs to be said when this is done. If you're going to quote the prophet, brethren, please quote her properly. Do not misquote her. I realize there's room for error, but brethren, don't make mistakes when you quote the prophet and influence people's faith and people's decisions one way or another when the decision could be detrimental to their salvation. People are rejecting truth based on misquotations. The servant of the Lord corrected her own handwriting. If you look closely, she first of all wrote, there are three, there are the living three persons, but then she crossed out the S and she wrote on top of it, alities, which makes it read personalities. Obviously, she saw a problem in that she could have been misunderstood when saying the living three persons, and she crossed out the S and wrote personalities. Now, someone, and I have heard this a number of times, might say, person or personalities, what's the difference? They both mean the same thing. Well, obviously, brethren, they don't mean the same thing to the prophet because she crossed out the one and wrote the other. Obviously, she had a different understanding between the two in her mind. And the understanding that she had that is different is consistent with her other writings. Let us look at this trio of heavenly personality. Who are these living three personalities of the heavenly trio? Is this a trinity? Is this a trinity of gods? Is this a three-in-one God? Is this what the prophet is saying? Who are the heavenly trio? Testimonies, volume 9, page 189. Quote, They have one God and one Savior and one Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is to bring unity into their ranks. Brethren, these are the heavenly trio. One God, not three, one Savior, and one Spirit, and that's the Spirit of Christ. That is by no means a trinity. The Spirit of Christ, we saw earlier, is His own life, the soul of His life, His own breath. That is the Spirit of Christ. One God, one Savior, and one Spirit. That is the heavenly trio. These are the living three personalities of the heavenly trio. The Spirit of Christ is a personality. It is not another different being. It is his own personality that comes to us while he physics, physically remains in heaven. Let's read another one. Great Controversy 477. Quote, The Father gave his spirit without measure to his Son, and we also may partake of its fullness. Again, here we go. Here are the trio. The Father gives His Spirit to His Son and we partake of its fullness. Remember what that statement says? That the Spirit comes to us in all the fullness of the Godhead. The fullness of the Godhead is the Father filling His Son, as we found earlier. That Christ in Him is gathered all the fullness of the Godhead. That's the fullness of His Father. The Father gives His Spirit to His Son that we also may partake of its fullness. That 
is the trio. That's not a, a three-member Godhead. That is not a three-person trinity. That is a father who gives his own spirit to his son. Let's look closely. What is the third personality? The third personality, or the third person, as we found earlier, is Christ himself, his very own spirit, divested of the personality of humanity. You see, you need to understand what happened when Christ went back to heaven and was glorified and poured out the spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead because Christ comes to us in the third personality divested of humanity. Let us read it together. 14 MR Manuscript Releases, Volume 14, page 23, quote, Cumbered with humanity, Christ could not be in every place personally. Therefore, it was altogether for their advantage that he should leave them, go to his Father, and send the Holy Spirit to be his successor on earth. Now notice, the Holy Spirit is himself, not someone else. The Holy Spirit is himself divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. He would represent himself as present in all places by his Holy Spirit as the omnipresent. Brethren, that is the third personality of the heavenly trio. It is the Holy Spirit, which is Christ himself, but divested of the personality of humanity. Christ operates on two levels, as a minister in the sanctuary above in flesh, and as the same minister in our hearts by his own spirit, divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. And by his spirit, he represents himself as present in all places, as the omnipresent. It's very plain when we allow the prophet to explain herself. Continuing, another objection from Selected Messages, Book 1, page 296. Quote, this is from White Art Church, if you notice the background. But the life of Christ was unborrowed. No one can take this life from him. I laid down of myself, he said. In him was life original unborrowed, underived. And that term, those three words, are the most popular objection to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, it's very easy to misunderstand something when we read part of the statement. Let's read the full statement and see what does, what does it mean when it says, in him was life original, unborrowed, underived. Does that mean that he was never begotten? Does that mean that he was never given that life by his father? Because this is the assumption that people draw from it. Let us read the statement in its full context. Continuing, this is in reply now. Quote, in him was life, original, unborrowed, underived. This life is not inherent in man. He can possess it only through Christ. He cannot earn it. It is given him as a free gift, if he will believe in Christ as his personal Savior. How so very plain. Original, unborrowed, underived life can be given. Christ was given original, 
um, borrowed undrived life. He didn't borrow it. He didn't derive it. He was given it. John 5.26 has told us that plainly long ago. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Question. What kind of life does the Father have in himself? Answer. Original, unborrowed, underived life. Question. What kind of life was Christ given? Answer. The same life that is in the Father. That is, original, unborrowed, underived life. From this statement, we can plainly see, for all those who object that this life can be given, that this life is actually given. Man can possess it, and it will be given to man as a free gift. So original, unborrowed, underived life can be given. Question. Does the Father's original, unborrowed, underived life really flow through the Son? Is this what the Son has been given? Quote from the Deserve Ages, page 21. All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. How so very plain. All things Christ received from God. Does that include life? If you read a little further in that statement, we're told, whose life is it that flows out through the Son? The Father's life. What kind of it? Of life is it? It is original, unborrowed, underived life. And Christ has that life by virtue of being the only begotten Son of God. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.